uh, debatable all-star, uh, Ethan Meyer, put me in <laughs> touch with you. Uh-huh. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, like, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting, as he was telling me about this uh, show and your involvement and everything, and as I was reading mm-hmm. your bio and everything, it seems very, it seems like a very fascinating show, but mm-hmm. it also seems like you come from a very fascinating background, too. <laughs> so I kind of wanted to, to kind of talk about you a little bit, if that's okay. Sure, and, I love talking about <laughs> <laughs> We'll do two hours of that, and then we'll <laughs> talk about the show. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. You know, uh, you're getting into a show now that's uh, it's, it's a, it's a two-hour special, right? That's right. And it's, uh, it's premiering since we're recording this at a particular time. It's premier, and, and this is going to come out before that. So it's premiering Sunday, March 16th, yes. 8 p.m. Eastern. Yes. And what and is it called? It's called Killer Legends. Um, and it actually, Chiller does this interesting thing where they will play it at 8 and then play it again at 10 nice. and then at midnight. So nice. it'll just be forever. Yeah. So that night is blocked off just for you. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> how did uh, how did the project come about? And let's let's actually talk about what the what the project is because it's it seems sure. fascinating in and of itself. Sure. So the project is Killer Legends. Um, it's a we're, where we investigate the where true crime and urban legends right. intersect essentially. So, you know, in simple terms, it's we. We all know urban legends. We, we, for this one, we're hoping there might be more in the future. For this one, we kind of hit four that everyone pretty much has told around the campfire. Right. We talk about, um, you know, the call is coming from inside the house, which is the babysitter and the man upstairs. Which absolutely. I, I feel like everyone knows. Um, classic, yeah, absolutely. Classic, totally. And um, the hook man, mm-hmm. um, which then we also call the phantom because we – investigate that true we investigate that urban legend um through the lens of a true crime that happened in texarkana that um the the culprit was um given the name of the phantom so that's kind of like you know like um two kids are parked in lover's lane Mm -hmm. and you know over the radio comes a crazed madman with a hook or hand has escaped the 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 mental institution be aware blah 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 are these um, or, are these origins of of the urban legend, or are these true crime uh, events that kind of mirror this urban legend? Like the urban legend came beforehand. You know, we don't know. I mean, it's the chicken or the egg kind of. Right. You know, we are using these these urban. We are using these true crimes to talk about the urban legends, right. and we go to the communities that these true crimes actually happened, and. Um, See if there's any – try to link what actually happened in that true crime to mm-hmm. the urban legend. Gotcha. There's no way we can say – we can pinpoint and say, yes, we definitely know that in Texarkana, the guy who um, went on a killing spree in, ni- in 1946, we can link that directly back and say, yes, mm-hmm. this is where the hook man came from. Right. There's no way you can do that. Right. Um, and that's what the lore is for urban legends, and that's why it's kind of scary because you can never know. Sure. You know, it could be, it could always be in your neighborhood. It could always be in your backyard, right? Because we never know where it exactly. came from. Um, and then we go to, which is, an, it is an urban legend. People don't know this urban legend as much, and I didn't know until investigating it. Which is um, the Phantom Clown scare in Chicago, but we also talk about that through the lens of just clowns being just. <laughs> Creepy, scary, yeah, you know? exactly. 
you know, and kind of like, how did that happen? You know, um, clowns came from, you know, the jester, the joker who was, um, in medieval times, the one who could have like, who could mock nobility. You know what I mean? They get, they were allowed to do that. And then that kind of archetype has changed and twisted. And then it came to America in the 1800s as, you know, carnival, you know, these, these sad kind of figures. Um, and then something changed in the forties and fifties where you have Bozo, where you have like Mm -hmm. these crazy looking, you know, entertainment for kids that's now in our neighborhood, now in our living room and are watching them on TV. And it seemed like that was okay for a little bit (laughs) until like the sixties and seventies when, you know, we started thinking about what's behind that mask, really. Right. What is actually behind? Why are these, you know, people dressing up? Yeah. And is there something to hide? And then, of Facades course, you, and smiles. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And then you have, of course, poltergeist and, and the quintessential clown scariness is, yeah. is it. Surely, you know? surely. So... Yeah. It's but, interesting, like mm-hmm. it, from a from a even a psychological uh, perspective, it is it is deep ingrained in our society that we all share these kind of fears. I have siblings that just absolutely hate clowns, will not look at clowns, and uh, it also kind of it comes from uh, even even uh, uh, serial killers. What, what was his name? Uh, Gacy, John Wayne Gacy was the killer clown, right. wasn't he? Exactly. In Chicago as well. And yeah. so there's this weird thing that was happening in Chicago. We actually went to a graveyard where back in the early 1900s, I think it was like 1917, there was a train wreck where all these carnival workers were killed, including clowns. Oh, and yeah. there is a cemetery pretty much filled with, filled with clowns. It's where, <laughs> Bozo, it's where Bozo started. It's where Gacy you know, had his reign from the early 70s to, you know, his death. And God, I think he wasn't killed until like 93 yeah, or something right. like that. Um, and then we have this phantom clown scare, which is linked to, you know, it's Chicago in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Even now there's rough, there's rough sections. And most yeah. of these clown scares, these, it was pretty much this clown dressed up trying to, to kidnap kids, you know, quote mm-hmm. unquote, these sightings. Um, no one ever really, there's no real hard evidence that this actually ever happened, but um, it, it, it tells more for what was going on in society at that time, yes. you know, and this, I was, it was actually interesting, I was listening to a podcast yesterday about mass hysteria, and that's really what it, what it was. It was really bad things were happening right. in urban communities, and because you couldn't pinpoint what those really bad things were necessarily, or there's always something bad. Yep. There was this way that the community and the children, especially, were you know, created their own monster. Oh yeah. You know. Do and you do all- you think that it pro- props up at really after World War Two, like after even going into like the late sixties into the seventies? When does this yeah. like? Yeah, I the think, atmosphere? I think. I think after World War Two, I think that the the um, disintegration of the family unit. Right. You know, we're moving into the suburbs. There's this sense of stranger danger. Who's mm-hmm. who's next door? You know, you're always kind of wary of of. That's when like stranger danger happened. It was like the seventies, eighties. Yeah. Lock lock. Um, kids going home by themselves. What is it? Latch, right. Latchkey kids. Latchkey kids. Right. You know what I mean. Um, so, 
Yeah, I think that there was this underlying suspicion of everyone around you. Mm-hmm. Um, you couldn't you couldn't trust anyone anymore. At least that was the the feeling. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a lack of uh, having like it, it. It seems like we paint as a society historically uh, the 1950s as a, mm-hmm. a, a wonderful time and as a you know a time that you could leave your doors unlocked. And mm-hmm. then as we get further on, especially after the Vietnam War and all the things that were going on with uh, the government and just the, the atmosphere of mm-hmm. uh, paranoia, that uh, the fact that really high-profile serial, serial killings, mm-hmm. uh, the atmosphere, like I, I said, of paranoia, it just seems to get more and more uh, creepy and scary mm-hmm. to, to think. And probably a lot of these stories kind of blew out from one incident that happened, you know, in a small town or in Mm -hmm. one particular part of the country. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. And I think that there is also, especially the, the, the age that we live in now, there's so much of a sensationalization of, of events, which then just becomes ingrained in our heads. And it's, it's like, I was just reading the other day or I was listening the other day that, we live in the safest time pretty much that we've ever lived in, right. but it everyone feels like it's everything's going to shit. You know, yeah. everyone feels that everything's dangerous. Right. Everyone's out to get you. Um, it's also the it, phase that we're living in mm-hmm. with, uh, with how the, uh, the economy has fallen and just mm-hmm. the, the, the un- uncertain future. A lot of people have as far as having jobs or anything, just mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that there was, I think I didn't hit upon, my, I, I don't want to say favorite, but I think which is the the most interesting of the urban legends that we investigate, and the one that I think most people don't necessarily think of as an urban legend, which is tainted candy, tainted Halloween candy. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, razor blades, yeah. Razor blades, um, poison, um, um, razor blades and apples. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I remember being a kid, as I think everyone does, as I think they still do, you know, yeah. all the parents have to check the candy before yeah. you can eat it, yep. you know, and <clears throat> it's so ingrained in us that there's this person out there who is out to harm children, who, <laughs> right. who gets their jollies off of it. But in actuality, it's never happened. Right. It's never happened. No one, there's no documented case of a stranger giving a kid poisoned candy right. or anything right. in razor blades it was that, um, it's that social thing you we all uh, we all share this this social folklore you know mm-hmm. you, you also you, I, I remember and probably this is not even true of the time this probably happened before it definitely happened after but I remember when I was a, a kid or maybe right before I was born uh, there was a, a scare of uh, of people um, or, or was this even uh, uh, maybe it was a legend in and of itself of people uh, uh, poisoning or or uh, or um, like breaking into the packages of aspirin Mm-hmm. Of uh, I I don't even know I never heard That's, whether that is absolutely true. Yes, so back in the late seventies, I believe there was um, there was a rash. It's Tylenol. Tylenol. Um, and it was I forget which poison it actually was. I think it was cyanide. I think it might have actually been uh, cyanide. And it's interesting. And we were going to include that in um, that section's called the Candyman. Mm-hmm. And we were going to include that as as an aside um, because it's interesting because that did happen around Halloween. So somehow 
that story kind of got twisted and and um, taken by media, and it, mm-hmm. it somehow it blended together and made the urban legend of tainted candy during yeah. Halloween even that much stronger because that was happening in October. Yeah, um, which is so interesting. But that is that is a real thing. There was someone who put. That's why we have the uh, the, the yeah. yeah. That's why we have the um, the, the uh, safety yeah, yeah the tamper seals right right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I want I want to retract that for a second though because they never did pinpoint who it actually was. Mm-hmm. Um, there possibly maybe it was a factory thing, but I know there was documented cases of people actually being killed because of the poison in the Tylenol. Right. That see that right there. It's 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 uh, just like uh, to me. It's all, almost like uh, the shower scene from Psycho. You're mm-hmm. you're factoring in something that's so vulnerable. Whether it's you know our children or taking a shower or mm-hmm. you know just simply getting some a headache medicine. You mm-hmm. know something that that someone is non-discriminately preying on our vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. There's a fear right there. Mm-hmm. For sure. Certainly. How did you, um, you, you're, you're the producer of this project, right? That's right. And who, who is your director? Uh, Josh Zeman is a director. He did a film, um, called Cropsy, which I'm not sure you're um, familiar I, with or not. I am actually. In okay. fact, with the, the, um, the particular, uh, network that I work for, mm-hmm. uh, uh, broadcast it when it, uh, when it went to oh, air. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so he did, um, the film Cropsy, which is... A, one urban legend, which mm-hmm. is the legend of Cropsy on Staten Island, and that's where he grew up. And it was, you know, this legend that kind of came true when missing children actually did end up disappearing mm-hmm. from this dilapidated or the Staten Island. But there was that legend that this mental institution housed this, you know, kind of hook for a hand kind yeah. of being. Um, that would snatch children. Right. And then children actually started going missing. Mm-hmm. So it was a really interesting take on that um, urban legend blurring the lines between that and in a real event. Right. Mm-hmm. And so kind of uh, Killer Legends is kind of a continuation of that. I mean, at least the same right. same uh, subject matter. That's right. What, mm-hmm. what I can understand what uh, attracted Zeman to it. How did you get involved with this? What attracted you to it? I actually came on as a researcher prior um, for this project. I didn't come on to necessarily produce mm-hmm. or to co-host. Um, I, he had the ideas of which stories he wanted to do. He had four stories in mind, one of which didn't end up working um, because we couldn't find a good story to link to the urban legend, and that was um, um, organ harvesting. Wow. You know, you wake up in a bath of mm-hmm. ice and scrawled in lipstick on on the mirror is you know call 911 we've taken your kidney um that was so my 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 duty on on the show to begin with was these the urban legends that we want to pursue we need to find the true crimes that we can speak of this urban legend through Mm -hmm. um he knew he already wanted to do the texarkana for hook for a hand and then we were kind of open up for the rest. And he actually had Candyman as well. Right. So I had a hard time finding anything for Organ Thieves that wasn't international, which we hopefully, you know, this will get picked up by someone somewhere so we sure. can continue to do more of these. Absolutely. Um, but I took that one out, and he had had a hard time finding anything to link the babysitter story. Mm-hmm. So I was able to find this tragic case in 1950s of Jeanette Christman 
um, and a few other women who were preyed on while they were home alone, some right. of them babysitting. Right. Um, we were able to tell that story through that. So yeah. I came on to research those stories, make the um, cold calls, get the people who could tell the story, the victims' families, people who were there, uh, reporters, police, um, journalists, you know, uh, people on the ground yeah. who we could go, into, go to and talk to. Um, and through that, I did that for about two months. Um, and he'd always wanted to have a co-host nice. to be able to be boots on the ground. Mm -hmm. And they had people in mind. And then um, when push came to shove, I just ended up knowing the stories and made the connections mm -hmm. um, and had built the trust with those people, with the contributors, that it just kind of made sense for me to take on that role. That's great. Um, so yeah, that's how I how I came on to to co-host and produce it. It sounds like a, a massive research project that kind yeah. of spun out into. Yeah, it seems like something that you know a, a journalist would do for a long form uh, uh, article. Really, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. it's fantastic. Did you? Um, how did you? Uh, did, were you coming at it from? the interests of the research or were you a, a filmmaker in and of yourself? Like what were you, what were you doing before that? I actually, I have a very strange background as far as film and television is concerned. <laughs> um, I came to New York and I, I was very interested in, in post-production and editing yeah. and creating stories on the back end. So I started that and started, uh, I ran a school for film editing. We, um, we partnered with filmmakers to get their films um, in a rough cut um, version. Really great films like Winter's Bone, yeah. um, Gregory Crutzen's um, uh, is it Brief, Encou Brief mm -hmm. Encounters. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, a, a, what, a Frozen River, like some really great, both narratives and docs. So right. I was there for about six years. It's called the Edit Center, and it was in Chelsea. It's now in Dumbo. I met some really, really great filmmakers. And through that process, I found, um, I discovered that, well, I'm not a great editor, and I think my personality lies more in producing. So sure. I decided that I wanted to pursue that. And because we had constant directors and producers coming through with their films, I just kept an eye out of a film that I thought, with my limited knowledge, I could help the director really bring the film to life and right. to um, help get it made, essentially. And that's when I um, met Sally Rowe, and her film went through our workshop, and I said, hey, look, you know, I want to get on a project that I really admire and that I really like and that I think that I could help out and she was a first-time filmmaker and so she hired me um, as as an associate producer um, and then I worked my way up and became a producer and it did really really well and you know premiered at South by and went to Tribeca and we got on HBO and it continues to have a life That's um, yeah it was a really great learning experience um, and then after that uh, I've worked in Reality television, um, producing at various levels, um, was on how I met Ethan, who who hooked us up, was um, on American Pickers. Right. Yeah. 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 Which is, which is really interesting because that's where I really learned that I like people's stories more than yeah. anything else, and yeah. that show. It's a reality show, and my heart doesn't lie in reality television, but the people and the characters I met because they they usually are in small towns. Right. 
Um, they're just amazing people. They their were just stories, like, and yeah. their stories were amazing. And that's what I kept wanting to be drawn by, you know, right. you know, half the people I would, I would think, gosh, there is a story here and I would love to, you know, be able to do a documentary on this person or this town or whatever, right. you know? So when it came to killer legends, being able to talk to those people, like I did the contributors for American pickers that really helped me establish trust because American Pickers was a little bit different, but you're still establishing trust with these right. people and really trying to connect with these people um, on uh, different levels. I mean, you're trying to um, have them tell, be comfortable with you. Mm -hmm. And for Killer Legends, you know, sometimes that was very difficult. For instance, in the babysitter case, um, I mean, Jeanette Christman, she was murdered in 1950, but her friends were still around. And she was, mur right. she was brutally raped and murdered when she was 14 years old. She actually 13, a week before her 14th birthday, and was buried on her 14th birthday. Oh, my God. And so I was able to track down her friends um, and talk to them. And her killer has never been found. They feel that there was an injustice, you know, back then. And it still, it still resonates if you watch the show. Right. The first person we interview is um, Carol Haley Holt, and I mean, she's, she starts. She's emotional. She's crying. She's telling us what happened to her, and it's mm -hmm. still there, fifty, sixty years later. Absolutely. Yeah. Is that um, a big? Is that a, the hardest part of doing this type of research? Is gaining the trust, or is it what? What? What were the major obstacles when you come? When it comes to researching this. The main obstacles in researching this, that's a good question. I don't think, for me, it's not necessarily gaining the trust. Um, I find that I'm able to, for people, to, to gain people's trust pretty easily. Yeah. Um, but I think it was really deciding what kind of killing your babies in a way and that we could have gone in so many different directions right. with all these stories and so many different people who, who could have told those stories right. and knowing that we have limited resources and really, you know, looking at our pretty much what our paper edit going into one, what we wanted it to be and seeing like, all right, if we go down this road with this person, that means the story's going to, and we only had a certain amount of time for each story. Right. Each one of these stories could have been its own documentary, essentially. But um, really knowing and really thinking hard about, do we have time for this part of the story to really be told and to be, and to respect it enough? Right. Um, no. No on this one. No, we, we can't do this, you know? Right. I think that was kind of the most difficult part. You're bringing, is, the, you're bringing that editing mind back to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you really have to think about it. Um, and I think we did a really pretty good job with that. Once we had all of our ducks in a line, once we hit the ground, there's only a few people and a few threads that weren't included, right. you know, in the final stories. Right. And because we researched the hell out of it. We, we knew all of our angles and all of our options before going. And because we had limited resources and a limited crew and limited time, sure. you know, we just didn't have time. We were, you know, we were there in each city for three days, I think, right. essentially trying to put these stories together. Sure. 
Yeah, it seems a really like a fascinating project. I can't wait to see it, actually. Um, you know, I'm looking at your bio, and we were we were talking about kind of the uh, the milestones in your life and what you've gone through and everything. And um, is it is it true that you've had a, had a pseudoscience background? <laughs> it's very true. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I'd love to talk about so, that. So, so where exactly does that start for you? Um, so I grew up in Texas, all over Texas. My um, mom was a young mother. Um, so she wasn't really that much in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and my grandmother pretty much raised me. And my grandmother was a very interesting woman who has always kind of delved into, I wouldn't say mysticism. I would say more pseudoscience new agey a little bit, mm-hmm. but more, there was a time, you know, after coming out of the human potential movement and before these kind of, um, you know, and before the secret, which Mm -hmm. I, I can't stand. I can't stand the secret. (laughs) It drives, it's what, what good visualization and positive thinking and putting good vibes out there to receive good things has gone in such a horrible way. And I think all those people are actually like suing each other and it's just (laughs) not what was intended. Sure. But after the human potential movement, um, you know, after, you know. Which was what? I'm not completely sure about that. What was the human potential movement? So I think there was a time, um, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, where there was this idea that there's something, and it's always been there, of course, but there's this idea that our, our mind, there's more to our mind, obviously, than we think that there is, and we have more control of our environment and our mind. Right. And that there are things that we can do with our mind that we ha- that there's so much that we have not unlocked, and that through um, various ways we can um, have a little bit more control of the powers of the mind that we are maybe not aware of. It's right. it's tapping into these things. I mean, and it goes into you know remote viewing and spoon spoon bending and. Um, really harnessing this, what I just, what I see is, you know, um, if you, manifestation of mm-hmm. things in your mind to help better yourself, your, your environment and the people surrounding you. You right. know, I know that sounds very like not like grounded or not really, it's really hard to explain. I mean, it's something that's always, I've always known and just kind of something that has always been around me. So when when I started going, to, it's it's Silva mind control is what I started in, which mm-hmm. is you know there was um, mind dynamics, there was Scientology, right. there was Est after mind dynamics, there's landmark forums. You know now that it's interesting, and I would love to do a documentary on kind of the genesis of what after the human potential movement into like this pseudosciency age of Aquarius kind right. of 60s, 70s time yeah, yeah. to what exists now, which is pretty much like making money essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that's where it's, that's pretty much where it's landed now. But when I was taking classes in the seventies and the eighties, it was still this like almost science based. It was like our mind functions at certain, um, at a certain level that and we can go to um, our quote unquote level and pretty much it's self hypnosis mm-hmm. and program ourselves. So, 
So with Silver Mind Control, which my grandmother was a, um, she was one of the big lecturers um, in in Texas, and one of the few women who was doing it. Wow. And it was started by um, a Mexican American. He actually um, was from Nuevo Laredo, mm-hmm. so it was a big thing in Texas. Um, but I remember going to these to these seminars and you know being brought to to my level and it's really just meditation it's self hypnosis mm-hmm. and you you it's a lot of visualization so it's this mind's eye kind of thing so you know closing your eyes right. counting backwards and then for instance one technique was the healing hand which was i'm going to my level mm-hmm. not my level i i visualize my hand um being dunked in hot water and then cold water and then hot water and then cold water and hot water and cold water. And that at the end of this programming, this quote programming, that my hands would be this healing hand when I'm at my, at my functioning awareness of everyday life, that if I'm hurt or someone else is hurt, I put this healing hand on whatever the pain is and that pain will go away because I programmed that hand to, to take all pain away. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems to be a kind of a way to funnel positive thinking into mm-hmm. positive action and positive uh, results around you. Yeah, absolutely. But unfortunately, it has gotten to the point that it's kind of uh, religion and 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 sex around it have become mm-hmm. money makers, as you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a money maker now, for sure. I mean, even I mean. I'm I'm very happy that I grew up with silver mind control, which it's by the way no longer called silver mind control because people would hear mind control and think oh, that someone else right. is controlling your mind. <laughs> yeah, so right, exactly. I think it's called, and then it was called like silver the silver method, and then it was called now I think it's called like the silver system or something mm-hmm. like that. And it itself has definitely changed. And I you know I think they still have the fundamental um, programming, but it's. It's definitely changed. I mean, when I was in it, we were getting to levels of like ESP and remote viewing. And I would go for like a summer class with all the other kids and bin spoons. And like um, we would have these like visualizations of like um, going into um, organic matter and metal and stone and other, you know, um, organic like beings, you know, just to like – it's interesting. Like there was really uh, an idea of this, which I think you know a normal person can have and not have to go through like a system sure. or whatever. Of you know that we, I, I, I don't get sick. I really, really don't get sick that much because I believe that I will not get sick, mm-hmm. and therefore I don't get sick. I really don't. And it's not like, you know, I have to convince myself of that. It's just like that's. I'm so. I'm like so grateful that that was kind of put in me at an early age. Yeah. That it was just, this is just how it is, right. you know? Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's it's giving you the option to fail. It seems yeah. like it's always putting you in a positive mind space. This is the same thing that they uh, talk about, uh, I, in a way, I guess it's connected. You know how they say, uh, if you're trying to lose weight, if you focus uh, mm-hmm. your mind on that body part or that part of the body mm-hmm. that you want to lose weight, that uh, you'll have better results. Mm-hmm. It is certainly fun, uh, funneled into into positive thinking, which I think a lot of people uh, kind of uh, write off as easier said than done. Yeah. But uh, it, I, I've, I've even experienced it in my own life. It sounds like it's shaped you quite a bit. 
Mm-hmm. Has it shaped your your professional life too? Do you think that you you bring that to your professional life and you feel like you've had more success because of it? Yes, absolutely. And it's it's yeah, I mean, as I said, like I've come to this industry in such a strange way and been so lucky and I'm so grateful for that. Um, and I see so many other people, I mean, I'm struggling as well, you know, I'm a, you know, a fledgling filmmaker, you know, and I don't know where my next paycheck is coming from right now. You know what I mean? Exactly. But, um, yeah, things just, and I was just talking to Josh the other day about that, Josh, um, the director, um, because we have other projects that we're working on as well, Mm -hmm. um, going into the future. But I was like, you know, I feel really lucky because I feel like things just always end up working out for me. Yeah. And they just always have. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean like two days ago, maybe I was, I was crying because I didn't think it was going to work right, ever right. again. But like I, I get back to that place of like it's going to be fine. Like things genuinely work out for me. And, you know, I believe that because that's what's happened for me. But it's also what happens, happened for me because I believe it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It keeps you away from, from – I think that – the most important thing is when you get like really in a in a in a deep deep pit of despair is mm-hmm. really allowing yourself to accept kind of uh, that failure or accept that sort of of sadness, but know mm-hmm. when to get out of that rut. Tell yourself yeah. to get out of that rut. For sure. Motivate for sure. yourself. Yeah. So, um, getting back to Killer Legends, though. Mm-hmm. So, is there anything else you want to say about the show that that uh, you know uh, a listener might be more interested in? You know, we've already talked so much about it that uh, that I you know I can understand anybody wanting to check mm-hmm. this out on, on Sunday. Is there anything yeah. else that uh, that is enticing? Yeah, I mean, what I think that we're doing is something different than what. I, I see on television right now, you know, and I'm not coming from that. As, I'm not being precious about it, but, um, you know, I watch television and I see what's on there. I don't even watch that much television, but, um, we are, I think what we're doing is very smart. Yeah. Like I think some people might, um, put us in the box of like, quote, ghost hunter shows right, or, yeah. you know, this paranormal or, you know, where we're going out and you know, we're looking through night vision goggles, mm-hmm, right, or we have right. an e-meter or something like that. You know, it's really not about that. It's right. really not about that at all. It's, it's that we're not trying to um, package these stories into something that we've already written necessarily. Yeah. We are letting these stories tell what they want to tell for themselves. Um, you know, I've, I've worked in reality television enough to know that this is not what that is. Right. Um, this is something definitely different. It's, it's, um, well, you're exploring sociological things. You're not just exploring, yes. uh, you know, uh, the, the real historical events and you're not just exploring the urban legends or the folklore part of it. Yeah. You're kind of mixing both of them and you're kind of uh, exploring and making a comment on these things that we kind of share as a society. Absolutely. And, you know, to help us do that in the show, we, we have experts who come in, some really, really great um, folklorists who actually come in and um, psychologists who's come, who come in um, and people who can remark on how we have um, been able to 
What I find really interesting is the way that these stories, the way that these crimes that happened in these communities that we are there talking to these people, aside from the urban legends, how they have been able to carry on their own story and their Mm -hmm. kind of own legend, you know, to a lot of these crimes, which I find very, very interesting. And in the case of like the Phantom, which, you know, is where we were talking about um, Hook for a Hand, Mm -hmm. that one just, my mind just starts spinning because the way that they have um, incorporated their own legend of this guy who killed uh, people on Lover's Lane between between, uh, in 1946, mm-hmm. and then there was this movie made of, quote-unquote, I think it was one of the first times when it was said in a film, because there's this narrator in the film, it's The Town That Dreaded Sundown, I don't right. know if you know that movie oh, yeah, or not, yeah. but, um, and he says, you know, all these events are true, only the names have been changed, right. which is a, a lie when it comes to this right. film, right. Um, but that the crime happened so long ago, and then you have this film that is saying, no, 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 this is really how it happened. Mm-hmm, right. Yet you look at the facts and it's not. Right. But a whole nother generation, two generations, in fact, have come since the crime actually happened. And this is what they have to work from. Exactly, exactly. But then you... it's, it gets more interesting than that, though, because then while we were there last summer, a film crew had just left. They're doing a remake of The Town That Dreaded Sundown <laughs> about a copycat who then like starts killing again. So it's just like this meta thing that starts happening. And it's like, where, where does the truth lie and story begin at this point for them? It's exactly. Yeah. It's, it's almost a a, a marketing ploy now that uh, something is uh, based on a true story. Mm -hmm. If something, you know, I, I, for me, uh, I I didn't, I hadn't seen uh, uh, the town that dreaded sundown until much later. But uh, for me, it was uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre right. with uh, the, a, a very similar uh, narrator saying that, you know, these are real events. And people think that not only did the events uh, come out just like this, mm-hmm. uh, but that it, it unfolded historically, you know, accurately uh, in a way that uh, the, the movie obviously isn't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It happens. Uh, it happens. In, it, it happens that we we accept this kind of uh, um, this fiction, and it kind of becomes how we remember the, the mm-hmm. history. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, and I hope that people will tune in and watch Killer Legends and really think about um, how we about storytelling. Right. You know, about storytelling and bad things that happen and how we as a culture and as a society and as a neighborhood, you know, how do we disseminate those horrible events and be able to have some, something come out of them, you know? And what I find more interesting than anything is that, or more scary than anything really is that there, there are no answers when it comes to what we're doing. You know, we're, we're letting people decide for themselves if there was any kind of connection between these urban legends and these two crimes, you know, it's, it's, that's, we're not, like I said, we can't pinpoint it, Mm -hmm. but because, um, I, I think it's just even creepier and, and more creepy is the right word really. I mean, we're not having like, scares in the dark and jumps. I mean, there mm-hmm. are a couple of them, but it's really this overall, like, you know, stick with us and, and we'll bring you to this place of like unsettlement. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think that's a big part of it is, is kind of just, 
feeling the dread that even, you know, a percentage of this uh, story that we've accepted as folklore might be uh, based in, in reality. That we see this and we see this in, in, in people, just our, our neighbors, like you said. Mm-hmm. It's very, uh, it, yeah, it, it is something that uh, is quite creepy when you think about it. So Killer uh, Legends is uh, this Sunday, March 16th, 8 p.m. Yep. You say it's going to be uh, replayed at 10 and midnight? Yep. And yep. it's on Chiller. Chiller. So, so check your local listings. Yeah, um, and if anybody's in Brooklyn and this airs before uh, Thursday, we have a one-night sneak peek at Nighthawk in Brooklyn. Right on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will let you uh, talk uh, as much shit as you want about <laughs> Ethan now. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, Rachel, thank you so much for, for yeah, taking the time. You. Thank you. No, this has been fun. It was a good conversation. Hope to ha- have you on the show again. Yeah, I would love to. Okay. All right. Take have care. Have a good one.